Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Ride on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Ride on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Saturday Night Live, in-kind contributors to the Biden administration. This week, we're talking with Justin Folk, director of the movie that warned us what would happen after colleges across the nation went woke. Now, he has a new mini-documentary every parent needs to see unless they want to get plunged into university debt beyond belief. We'll also hear from film critic Barry Wurst, whose love for quality cinema is only eclipsed by his appreciation for B-movies. Yeah, Barry's got range, all right. He's also the host of a lively new podcast. You're going to want to hear more about that, trust me. I confess I'm fascinated by the reaction from select comedians to cancel culture. Some, like Ricky Gervais and Adam Carolla and Chrissy Mayer, have taken a really strong stand against it. How could they not? It seems to make perfect sense. If you're a comedian, you've got this new woke set of bylaws you must follow or else, what comedian could be for it? Well, some are. I recently read an interview with Saturday Night Live legend Dan Aykroyd, who apparently welcomes our woke overlords. And yet it's what Mark Marin said recently on his own podcast about these bylaws that really got to me, and of course not in a good way. The host of What WTF with Mark Marin slammed anti-woke critics, as he called them, in a recent episode of his podcast. Here's a sample. I've had a problem for a while, and this is going back a year or two. Even more, maybe. Once comedians started complaining that they couldn't say things, that there was a they, they were being stifled or they were being uh, told not to not to speak freely or they were afraid to say things or they were going to get in trouble if they said things. And just this uh, this this idea that there was censorship on a day to day basis in a comedy club or just that they were somehow being shut down the comics. And it always sort of annoyed me. And then it kind of evolved into this uh, weird kind of anti-progressive, anti-woke comedy that just plays into this whole attitude that you can't say anything anymore. You can't, you're going to get canceled. You're going to get in trouble. Your career is going to be over. You can't say anything anymore. I must say I'm kind of shocked by that. 
Didn't see it coming at all. Now, you have to hear his entire rant. But what struck me about this particular one was, here's a guy who really should be fearing cancellation himself. And that maybe explains partly why he's saying what he is. He admits during the conversation that he once told all the wrong jokes when he was growing up, when he was evolving as a comedian back a few years ago. He used words he shouldn't have used. He used phrases he now would never use. And what he's not really talking about, or maybe he's too afraid to, is that the woke mob doesn't care about forgiveness. It doesn't care how long ago your transgressions were. They may just resurrect old problematic content, and all of a sudden you're canceled. Now, part of me thinks that Mark Maron is talking about this to preserve his own cancellation, or just stop it from happening. But doesn't he realize his comedy idols, the people he talks about, without naming names, but you can kind of figure out who they are, they'd all be canceled today if they were telling the same jokes they told back then. Doesn't he understand that? He was the guy telling all the angry things and illuminating subjects that he thought needed to be illuminated. Now he's just a progressive comic who says things that aren't exactly outrageous because most of the comedy community agrees with him. There's nothing really wrong with that. If that's his lane, then yeah, that's fine. Stay with it. No problem at all. But declaring war on anti-woke critics? You know, after I heard his rant, I thought, boy, wouldn't it be amazing if he teamed up with fellow podcaster Adam Carolla? I would love to hear those two really kind of break this down, what woke culture is, what the new bylaws are, why it really hurts comedy. Of course, that's not Mark Maron's take. That's certainly Adam Carolla's take. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't know if Adam Carolla is game or not. I don't think he's super confrontational on his podcast. But if I'm Mark Maron, I wouldn't go anywhere near Adam Carolla. He really brings common sense proposals to his arguments, and I think he would clean his clock on this issue. Still... It would be nice, wouldn't it? Comedians against comedy? Man, I never thought I'd see that day. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. This week's Toto's Take is The Trip. Terrible title, good movie. Numi Rapaz stars as a married woman who's spending the weekend at a rustic cabin with her husband. Oh, doesn't that sound quaint? But their marriage is far from perfect. In fact, 
he wants to use this particular vacation as a way to actually remove her, not from his marital situation, but from life. He wants to kill her. And you know what? She has the same plans for him. Aw, isn't that sweet? Of course, before they can complete those plans, a trio of escaped convicts invades their cabin retreat and all heck breaks loose. The trip moves really quickly, I like that in a thriller, and the story goes from black comedy to really kind of poignant observations about what it means to be married, the frustrations of married life. It's really unforgiving at times, and I have to say, this is in a very extreme situation, of course, and we don't want to say that this is, the, this is a preferred method than marriage counseling, but it does show you what happens to a married couple it kind of it kind of illuminates the the frustrations and how a couple that could be deeply in love how it could fall apart so fast so dramatically again it's black comedy it's not realistic but i think through that particular point of view you get a really better sense of well how marriages kind of just go astray this is a norwegian film so you've got subtitles no problem there and it's one of those movies where there are a lot of rough edges at play and i think for the most part that works beautifully there is one subplot involving a third party, and I really thought it was both unnecessary and it kind of takes some of the fun away. I don't want to say too much more about it, but I think it could have been taken out entirely and the movie would be just as good, if not better. Now, I have to admit, I hear a lot about films from different press releases. I read about films all the time. It's what I do. I had no idea about the trip at all until I was on Netflix late one night, just kind of shuffling through all the different choices, and it's, it kind of jumped out at me. I thought, I'll give this one a try. So, if you're looking for something fun and different and dark on Netflix, I highly recommend this trip. Hollywoodintoto.com, my website, has a secret weapon. His name is Barry Worst. Barry reviews mostly older films at the website, and he does so from a smart modern-day perspective. He's not going full woke on these titles, and he's not taking them directly out of their time periods. He's just appreciating them in a whole new light. You could tell some of the films he watched many times, other films maybe he watched 20, 30 years ago, and he's just kind of reacquainting with them right now. But I love his approach. He really kind of appreciates the movies for what they are, what they were trying to do. He also separates some of the cultural noise out of the way. A recent review he did with The Long Kiss Goodnight with Gina Davis, he talked about how the film critics of the era and the movie scribes, how tough they were on that particular project, explains why, the context, and how it really wasn't fair. And I love that about that. I think, I think providing that kind of context to the overall story, the reception the movie received, and how we could watch it today with a different point of view. I, all that I think is fascinating, and he's a really, just a great boost to my website. But turns out that Barry has other tricks up his sleeves. He's a film professor, he's a podcaster, and he has a new show. It's called So I Married a Film Critic. He and his lovely bride watch movies together, then they break them down for the listener. The show is smart and sweet and funny at times. Barry likes to break out different impressions of various actors. Some are good, some are mm, a little less than great, but you know he's given it his whole college try. But the show itself just gave me a good excuse to get Barry on this show and pick his brain about a number of movie-related topics. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that his show's funky theme song is by musician Morgan Jay. It's a little bit wacky, a little bit silly, and it might just get stuck in your head after a few listens. Here's my chat with film critic and podcaster Barry Worst. Barry, you provide an invaluable service to Hollywood and Toto. You review older films, but you do it through a modern-day lens. You're kind of giving us some perspective. We're getting more facts and information about the films. 
But I'm thinking, you know, you see so many older films. What has that taught you about films in general or even how the older films compare to the ones we see today? It's allowed me to go back and have a sense of what does and doesn't work and also how much I've changed as a person. An example, when I was in college, the last movie I ever reviewed for my college newspaper was Ridley Scott's Hannibal, and I really hated it. I despised that film the first time I saw it. I thought it was gross, and I was a fan of the Thomas Harris novel it was based on. But looking at that film about, I think about a year ago, because it just turned 20, oddly enough, Looking at it now through a different lens, removing it from The Silence of the Lambs, I found that I really loved the film because because I was just looking at it the way it was meant to be seen as opposed to my expectations to it. And that's how it is with a lot of these films. I'm, I'm removing myself from my childhood, my teens, my college years, and I'm able to look at these movies that I loved or didn't love and able to have a sense of whether they actually play or not. So that's that's exciting for me to to pull out a title and go, I love this back in 1986, or I love this back in 1997. I wonder if it still holds up. And for the most part, they do. I mean, you know, great art tends to just get better over time. But there, of course, there are films that just, just get worse and worse and worse. And that's that's also kind of fun, too, just to realize, oh, man, like I was... I was really wrong in 1988. <laughs> it's funny. I remember I watched, I think it was Win a Date with Tad Hamilton a while back. <laughs> and for some reason, it charmed the socks off of me. And then I thought, <laughs> I can't wait to see it again, maybe invite my wife or someone else to see it with me. And then on second viewing, it was so mediocre. I thought, what was I thinking? So it, it is kind of almost more fun in a way when you have a, a, a drastic change in your opinion on a particular topic. But uh, interesting to note that. Um, comedies, yeah, it's funny with comedies, isn't it? Because, I, you know, sometimes you just you laugh hard enough and they're charming enough in the moment that they you kind of give them a pass or they, they seem to work. One that I'm really embarrassed about, actually, because I, I keep, you know, I keep a lot of things among the things I keep are a lot of my old archives. I was looking at my top 10 list for the year 2001 and the John Cusack film Serendipity made my top 10 list. And um, that movie has no business being on any <laughs> top 10 best of the year list. <laughs> Oh, well. well, we'll spare that news from Mr. Cusack because he can be a little cantankerous, <laughs> it seems like. But, uh, uh, you know, I wrote this about this recently on my website. I feel a little burned out as a critic. I remember when I was a young young critic, there was an older fellow who did the job at a newspaper I used to work at, and he hated everything. And uh, he, I mean, I remember American, I think it was American Beauty, he gave one and a half stars. Now, you don't have to love American Beauty. I do. But I know there's a lot of people who are split on that. I don't think it's a one and a half movie, a star movie. And I feel like lately, when I think about doing different uh, radio appearances and there's a local talk show I do, a uh, local TV show, I feel like I don't like anything and of the new stuff. Do you find that at all? Or what, what's your sense of the newer films and sort of the hit to miss ratio? Well, lately, nothing is relevant because these movies are not political. They were all made in 2019. So mm. no one's wearing a mask. No one's talking about politics. No one's talking about a pandemic. So movies have never felt more like escapism to me. I'm looking forward, for example, to, I don't know when this is going to air, but the new Ghostbusters movie coming out this weekend. I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to it, but because the movie was made so long ago, I realized it has nothing to do with the world I live in at all. Um, and obviously, movies don't always function that way. But at the same time, I'm looking at movies that are complete science fiction. I'm seeing characters walking in massive crowds of people. You, you know, it's it just like, I think this this isn't the world I live in at all. Mm -hmm. So there's there's that aspect of it. And the thing that you may realize and, 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 uh, and have dealt with, and this is something that's 
this is something that really caught up with me even when I was writing for you and writing for other um, outlets in Colorado when I used to live in Colorado. Something that really caught up with me was I get tired and fatigued about writing about films at the end of December when all those deadlines are due and the top 10 list is out and I'm, you know, I'm scrambling to see every film that comes out and, you know, I'm, I'm finally put a button on. I'm like, okay, best picture of the year. Here it is. And then the Sundance load comes out and it's like, these are the hot films out of Sundance. I'm going, <laughs> no, no, stop the train. We're, we're done. We're done. Give me a break. We, we need to like, let's bask in, you know, in December. So I, I just feel sometimes like, especially at the end of the year, you, I mean, I watch so many movies as, as do so many film critics like yourself. And then when you get to the end of the year, it, I just, I need a break. I don't want to, I don't even want to think about January. Well, it's funny. I think that's the time for a B movie or a grindhouse flick or a classic uh, horror film that was a little bit cheesy. You get to get a cleanse the palate sometimes. It's, I think, it overdosing on serious, sober Oscar bait movies can be a little bit overwhelming for sure. Do you have one that you go to? You know, it's just horror. It's thriller. Um, anything like that, like a Starship Troopers or uh, Return to the Living Dead, is one that I, I find I, I just can't stop watching it. So movies like that for me or the put my braid on hold, just enjoy it and not even think about things. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I like about your new podcast is that it reminded me of my wife and I, because when I first met her, she didn't watch movies, had no knowledge of cinema, didn't know who Robert De Niro was. And it was almost like, okay, we need to end this date because this is, there's no future here. But of course, it turns out there actually is a future. But when you and your wife first uh, were courting, or even maybe even the first years of your marriage, were you on similar pages when it came? I mean, obviously this is your jam, but were you on the similar pages when it came to movies or did you find yourselves kind of maybe creeping toward each other as, as time marched on? We were always looking at it from different perspectives. I grew up in a house where my mother was a movie star in Japan back in the 1950s. She was in some Japanese B films way back in the day. My father was a playwright. So I grew up with parents who inundated me with all kinds of cinema, not always appropriately so. My father... I mean, I remember being in grade school. My father sat me down and introduced me to Kubrick, not just 2001, but A Clockwork Orange, The Shining. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and and you could say I had a very, it's funny because my father's a very conservative guy, oddly enough, but he really felt like the boys got to see Kubrick. And then Julia, on the other hand, grew up in a very conservative family where she, I mean, like The Flight of the Navigator was like the edgiest film that her family would watch <laughs> together. I think Speed was also another one, but in any case, like very reserved sense of film. So when we met, I mean, this is, and I, th I think I've told you this, the first thing, when we met each other, I had been writing for the college paper. We met each other in college and I had given Eyes Wide Shut, which was a new film at the time. I'd given it a rave review and I love Eyes Wide Shut and I know it's a divisive film. And she, that, that was how she knew me. So we kind of shook hands. A friend had introduced us and she basically said like, oh, you're, you're that guy. You're the eyes wide shut guy. <laughs> so, you know, which, which is a weird thing to, you know, to, to have as an introductory, you know, that was, that was like the, the icebreaker for us. But even when we started dating, um, she always had an adventurous sense of cinema, which is great. And she was always open to things, but to say the least, because it's me, because I love so many things. I mean, to say the least, so many dates have been disappointing because I said, let's go see the rules of attraction. Mm -hmm. Let's go see the Taylor of Panama. And <laughs> those, I mean, to just name two movie dates that were so, I mean, the rules of attraction, I think about an hour into the movie, this is true. She she actually positioned herself in her seat so that she was looking at the wall. She didn't want to look at the film anymore. 
And I said, because because she realized I was loving it. She's like, just let me know when this movie's over. I'm like, Jules, this is really good. Look how good James Vanderbeek is. She, no, just let me know when it's over. And as soon as the end credits started, she just bolted from that theater. Uh, and the same thing for the Taylor Panama. So we've, we've had those kinds of experiences where, where my kind of willingness to try everything sometimes completely backfired. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I, I try to steer my wife toward movies that she's almost guaranteed to love because I've always tried to kind of foster an appreciation for movies and movie watching with her because it wasn't her wasn't her past. So I'm very careful with the movies that I steer her toward. And I'm, I've got a pretty good success ratio because I kind of know her by now. But back in the day, I took her to see Eight Crazy Nights because she was a fan of Adam Sandler. And she has yet to let me live that down. And it's kind of shorthand for like, you picked the wrong film tonight. So I just have to say Eight Crazy Nights, I know. I've done it again. <laughs> but you tried. I mean, I that, tried. That's, a, that's if she likes Sandler, you, you'd figure that would work. You would think. You would think. But, uh, yeah. you know, your new show, to me, it feels different than a typical film review show. And I'm sure that's on purpose. Uh, just tell me maybe kind of a little of the backstory or how this whole project happened. It happened because it was during the quarantine here on Maui where we live. And, you know, it, it was just one of these things where we just because everything was basically shut down. We were all basically living in a cave. Um, it was basically like, let's, let's find something fun to do. And we, you know, we, we were managing just fine. My brother for my birthday had sent me, my brother, Marty is a filmmaker and a stand-up comedian. He'd sent me the Blu-ray for this movie that came out in 1986 called rad. Rad is considered the citizen cane of BMX biker <laughs> films for what it's worth. So he sends it to me in the mail. We watch it. And I hadn't seen it since I was a very small child. Jules and I watched it. We just howled through it. And I called Marty to thank him. I said, this was great. We had so much fun watching this. He's like, hey, if you ever if, just kind of as a as a thought, he says, if, if you two ever want to do like a podcast where you talk about like rad or like movies you enjoy, I would I would really be interested in in not only hearing that, but I would even produce it for you. So that was sort of the thing that got us started because we did the one for Rad and we just, we, we had a lot of fun doing it. So initially we were doing movies that made us just laugh a lot. We recently did um, an Amanda Bynes film called She's the One, which I can't stand, but Julia really enjoyed back in the day. And we realized that would be a lot of fun to revisit <laughs> a movie that uh, just hasn't aged at all well. But over time, we went and did films. Like, I mean, we, we have episodes forthcoming for Martin Scorsese's Silence, uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, David Cronenberg's The Fly. Some movies that she had never seen before, movies that I love and I just hadn't seen in years. So they were fresh experiences for us. And she's, you know, love of my life, but obviously it's just a lot of fun to talk to about films um, because she gets so caught up and carried away and emotionally drawn to the films. Um, I look at movies from a lot of different places and I feel like with Julia in, initially it's this emotional connection. If that happens, then, then, you know, then our passions for the film are, are, are met. I really enjoy the over the top episode, both your Stallone imitation and also just sort of the perspectives. I, I think it's one of the things I've enjoyed about your reviews of the older films is it's, it's fascinating to watch what, what was considered cool back in the day. Uh, the actors who were the the flavors of the month, the the tone, the setting, that the it just it's such a time capsule, and, and movies are perfect that way. Uh, you know, now that you've been doing the show for a little while, and I'm sure you know you and Julia have been watching movies together because you're a couple, and that's what couples do. Has it changed at all? Like if you if you kind of hunker down on a Saturday night now to watch a movie with your wife, is it a different experience because you've been able to kind of flesh it out on a podcast like this? 
Well, honestly, like I, I admire the fact that, you know, you state, you know, you, you, you know, your wife very well. So you have a sense of what she's going to like. I really admire you about that, about you, Christian, because I don't have that. It's never, <laughs> it has yet to happen because, <laughs> because what I do, it's, it's kind of awful, although the success rate is, is, is pretty good. What happens is I, I, I'll bring a film home or there'll be a film on, on streaming and I'll say like, let's give it 15 minutes. That's always my thing. Like mm-hmm. 15 minutes. If you hate it, we'll, we'll, we'll try something else. And that's how I got Julia to watch The Fly. And I love The Fly. I've always loved The Fly. It's my favorite Jeff Goldblum performance, my favorite Cronenberg movie. But I, it was a film that I never thought of showing to Julia ever for years. And then last year when we started with the podcast, I thought, I'd love to talk to you about The Fly, but mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to like this film, but I love this movie. And it was kind of this conversation because I told her what it's about. And I said, it's incredibly gory. She's like, well, I don't know about that. I said, well, you know, just 15 minutes. Just give me 15 minutes. And she got so caught up in the movie. She ended up loving The Fly, which was a shock to me. There have been a few films where just to get her interested, Die Hard was one. Mad Max Fury Road was another one. And I've come home. You know, I've come, I famously come home from work and found her caught her watching Die Hard and Mad Max Fury Road <laughs> by herself. Busted. So, so yeah, so, so that's, those are the success stories. I mean, but there are also films where, you know, 10, 15 minutes in, she goes, let's, we're going to watch something else right now. In fact, we're going to watch a romantic comedy right now. Oh. I can't believe you thought I would like this. So. <laughs> that's funny. That's when the punishment element comes into play. By yes. the way, I, I, back in the eighties, I was working at a video store, a mom and pop place. And that was my one monkey trick to borrow a phrase from Dennis Miller, I really had a good sense of who would who would appreciate which movie. Like I'd say, okay, Mrs. Sheehan, I know she's going to like this kind of movie, or that I know that this other guy, you put a gun in the, in the on the cover of the box and he's in. So it's one of the few sort of skills I brought to the, uh, the equation there. But uh, good good old VHS days. Uh, yeah, well, I worked at a video store too. Mm-hmm. I worked at Video Land and TV until it closed in 1995, and it was you know it's funny for all the. For all the, the things in my life that have brought me such joy and been such a blessing, I've never had a job I enjoyed more than working hmm. at Video Land TV. Honestly, I've, if that video star was still open, I would happily work there. <laughs> um, but it was, a, it was a similar thing um, where we had customers where I, I had a sense of what they liked. But also, kind of like what I do with my wife, I, I'm really interested in... It's like I this you may not like this, but give this a shot. Mm-hmm. I really I kind of love the whole jumping off the cliff thing about film criticism and recommending film. Tree of Life is a big one. It's my favorite movie. And it's so divisive and it's such a weird film. And I know most people just don't dig it. But I would rather recommend the Tree of Life and have someone love it like I did as opposed to be like, well, you know, Big Mama's House too is also really good. No, like try the Tree of Life. Well, to be fair, there's a lot of unanswered questions in uh, Big Mama's House 1, so you have to make a sequel. <laughs> you have to see the trilogy. That's yeah. right. That's actually a joke I steal from Bobcat Goldthwait. He asked, someone asked him about like making Police Academy 6 or 7. He's like, eh, so many unanswered questions. So, anyway. You only see one Police Academy, C4. Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. It is everything you want from a Police Academy. <laughs> That's the faintest praise you'll ever hear. <laughs> You should put that on the box. That's right. Excellent. Well, the name of the show is So I Married a Film Critic. It's got a funky intro song, which I got a big kick out of. And of course, the banter is great between the two of you. To me, it's like a change of pace and a breath of fresh air all in one because it's really, it's kind of what you do, Barry. It's it's showing a love of movies without the pretension, without the, the haughtiness. I think it's one of your greatest skills as a writer is that you're able to talk about the tree of life one day and then dawn till dusk and next and, and not not miss a beat. So that's why that's why you're such an essential voice in the, in the movie talk these days. But uh, I appreciate you joining the show and let's uh, have you back on again. 
Thank you. Such a pleasure, Christian, always. Thank you. Two years ago, there was a movie I waited and waited for. I just knew I'd love it, even before I actually saw it. It was called No Safe Spaces. It starred Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager, and it explored how free speech is under sizable attack on college campuses nationwide. Who knew that what happened on college campuses back then wouldn't stay there for long? And now the woke agenda is part of our everyday lives. Actually, Justin Folk knew. He's the director behind No Safe Spaces, a film that looked like it had a far bigger budget than it actually had. How did he do it? Justin is really talented. He knows how to kind of stretch those dollars behind the scenes and make a film with a small budget look like one that has a pretty darn big budget. And Justin has done it again with his new video for PragerU. It's called Trading Up, Our Case for Trade Schools, and it's an essential film aimed at parents who don't want their children to attend Adoctrination U. They can learn to trade instead, avoid mountains of debt, and have a pretty fine career on their own terms. Doesn't sound so bad. I've got two young boys. I'd love for them to do this. Justin and I discussed the new project, the fallout from No Safe Spaces, and also a secret film he's working on right now. He can't share too much about it, but I bet after No Safe Spaces, it's going to really make some noise. Here's my interview with director Justin Folk. Justin, it's good to talk to you again. First of all, you know, the pandemic's been going on for a year and a half, if not a little bit more, and a lot of creative types have had to kind of readjust given the fact that the traditional avenues are not available to them. And of course, there's the testing and all the different complications that COVID has brought about us. What have you been doing differently? Have you been able to work closer to full speed? How would you kind of describe your the last year and a half from a professional point of view? You know, to be honest, I, I think it, it's actually worked out well for me. You know, I get to work from home quite a bit. And so travel hasn't affected me too much. Uh, it's, it's allowed me to sort of, I guess, uh, you know, I don't know, focus and, and uh, put away some of the distractions that used to kind of be around when I always had to be somewhere at a certain time. So I think the pandemic has been actually kind of a good thing for me. And, and I think just from a human, a study of human behavior thing, it's been completely fascinating. So that's kind of, you know, what, what the pandemic has done to our society in terms of the way people are behaving has been, been really, really um, both scary and incredible. And so that's one of the things that I've been kind of interested in. Uh, real quickly, what jumps out at you when you think about how things have gone on the last year and a half as far as human behavior and what you've kind of seen from your fellow Americans during this time? You know, I think, I think the compliance thing, I think people not questioning authority has been, for me, one of the most disturbing things about what's happened during the pandemic. I used to think that people like to have their own opinion, that they used to be free thinkers and people could kind of decide for themselves, look at the facts and decide on their own as an intelligent human being, what's best for them. And, and I'm just amazed at the groupthink, frankly. And, you know, we made a movie about groupthink, No Safe Spaces was precisely about groupthink and how that can affect things. And I've just been very disturbed by sort of the Orwellian things that have happened and how quickly people have fallen into groupthink and and looked at people that have different points of view from them as not just wrong but evil mm-hmm. and in the case of the pandemic diseased you know mm-hmm. so that's been kind of a an alarming thing for me to kind of watch is uh, the groupthink the compliance that oh hey they said we need to do this and so you're you're evil if you don't do that and that's been the thing that's kind of i think 
one of the things I've been um, really surprised by. Well, Justin, it was only two years ago that your great film, No Safe Spaces, hit theaters. And uh, I have to say, it scared me then. It certainly scares me now to think about the topics in the film. But it feels like what you captured on university campuses basically just went mainstream. And I, I was kind of curious, did you sense that that was the inevitable evolution? Or are you surprised that, at how much that kind of a cultural movement has swept over the mainstream? Yeah, I think that's one of the main points that we were trying to make with the film, which was we, we often like to say what happens on campus doesn't stay on campus. And we're just trying to alert people to the fact that these ideas, the bad ideas that were that are being entertained on college campuses will soon go everywhere. And I think a lot of people had a lot of complacency in terms of, oh, you know, it's it's what happens on campuses. You know, kids are always doing crazy things and they didn't realize how these bad ideas could perpetuate themselves into big tech and into our daily lives. And I, I think we were trying to raise the alarm. I was surprised though, at the speed, at the, you know, how quickly it happened. Um, I don't think I saw that coming. Um, I just, uh, you know, how free speech being shut down on college campuses quickly turned into some of the largest companies in the world really monitoring and trying to engineer our conversations. Yeah. So that, that I did not see coming as quickly. And um, I think we're trying to raise the alarm on that, but little did we know how important that message would, would be. I think we may have talked either on or off the air about a possible follow-up to No Safe Spaces. And I, I almost think it maybe don't even want to get into that headspace again, just how depressing it might be. But is there any sort of natural or organic follow-up to that, either maybe in a short-form videos or a second film or anything related? Or is that sort of kind of a chapter in your creative life and you're moving on to different projects? Well, I'd like to consider something like that. I just feel like right now it's like drinking from a fire hose. I mean, it's all <laughs> happening so quickly that... Uh, if I was going to go try to make a film about what's happening, uh, you know, in regard to free speech being censored and shut down and big tech and all these other things as a follow-up, I, I just, it's happening so fast and, and uh, it'd be hard to kind of keep up with it. It is interesting how the pandemic has multiplied all of this um, and how it's, you know, using the pandemic and, and um, under the guise of public safety has been utilized to shut down ideas and speech and opinions that uh, people don't like. Um, so that is an interesting aspect that I think needs to be explored. I'm not sure if I'm the one to do it, but uh, you know, hopefully people are paying attention to that. I think, the I think you're right. I think the pandemic and also the George Floyd situation, I think that one-two punch really kind of changed. And I think that was the kerosene that was poured on the, on the, uh, the no safe spaces fire, unfortunately. And that's where we are today. You know, I don't think you take on your projects lightly. It seems that they're personal to you, and I know you kind of pull, put everything you have into them. Tell me about your connection with Prager University and uh, how the current documentary, how it all happened, because it seemed like a natural fit for you, but I'm just kind of curious how that all happened. Right. So I have a good relationship with Dennis Prager, obviously, for from No Safe Spaces. We traveled all over the country together making that film, and you kind of really get to know somebody when you're traveling and sitting in airport lobbies. <laughs> Um, and so it, it was natural that, you know, PragerU is doing such good work on so many different topics. And uh, they asked me if I'd like to make a short documentary. And uh, it just seemed like a great opportunity to, to take on a subject in, in sort of short form. And so they asked me if I'd like to do a movie on the issue of the trades and trade school. And uh, it's a topic I've always kind of been 
interested in a little bit. And uh, I said, sure. And so this is a great opportunity to work with PragerU. Now, PragerU wasn't necessarily part of No Safe Spaces, although they've been very helpful in promoting it. Um, so it was nice to work with PragerU directly and with their team. They got a wonderful team. And like I said, they're doing such great work on so many different topics. And so it was a real privilege to, to do a short film. It's about 20 minutes long. It's called Trading Up, um, our case for the trade schools. And the film features Mike Rowe and uh, Robert Kiyosaki, who's the um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad author. And, um, and then it also features a young uh, female welder named Chloe Hudson, who is just an absolute star. She, um, she works as a welder for Joe Gibbs Racing. And the story really is about her. And so we, we kind of show her as, as somebody that's pursued a life and work in the trades. And we're trying to, I guess, break up some of these stereotypes and, and stigmas around um, the trades. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm having work done in my house right now. And, and the workers I meet are skilled beyond you could possibly describe, uh, intelligent, interesting, uh, just well-versed. There was one handyman at my house. He was sort of re- leading the concrete team and spoke two languages better than I speak my, my native tongue. I, just gotta, I think they're fascinating individuals. And I think we, as a culture, uh, write off that, that part of the economic picture way too easily. Now, obviously, you know about trade schools. This is something that you were familiar with. But I think often when you deep dive into a project like this, it, it opens up more things to you. You learn more. Can you maybe share something you learned about this, about trade schooling that you didn't kind of understand beforehand? Well, that's a great point, Christian. I, that's one of the things that I enjoy the most about the work I get to do is get to learn about what, what you know, I'm making a film about. It, it's it's really incredible journey. It's just uh, fascinating to dive into this stuff. And so, uh, you know, in regard to trades, yeah, it was kind of mind blowing what I, what I learned. Um, I learned how deeply our society needs the trades. I think I already knew that, but I didn't realize to what extent. And I also learned that um, in about 10 years or so, half of the trades workforce is going to retire. So we're going to be looking at a situation where we, we really don't have people that can fix things or do things or make things. And, and we're going to be in, in a lot of trouble, especially in comparison to other countries and the way they, the way they look at trades, the way China looks at trades and Germany and these other places, South Korea, and how they really, really value trades. And so that was one of the eye-opening things for me working on this. Another eye-opening part of it was just learning more about the higher education system and how they just really the criminal enterprise of, of, of the student loan crisis and everything else and how kids are being told that they have to go borrow money uh, to go to one of these four-year schools to get a piece of paper. And if they don't do that, they're not going to be successful in life. And man, it's a giant lie. And, uh, and, to, and to examine that and just to see how bad the problem has become was um, disturbing, but also gave us a good reason to make the film and to get this um, message out there. Yeah, I didn't realize those staggering numbers about the retirement and, and, and what that means to the workforce. And every time, you know, the plumbing goes down in your house or electricity is on the fritz, you need people who are smart and capable and trained. And if they're not there, it's going to be a, it's going to be quite a bad situation. You know, uh, Mike Rowe is such an interesting guy. He, he's so well-spoken above and beyond being a personality. Uh, what he does on the in the public space, the fact that when he argues with people on social media, he does it in a way that's not cruel, but kind of gets his point across. He, he fascinates me. What did you learn about him when you were making the movie? Mike Rowe is one of my favorite Americans. 
I mean, I just think that Mike Rowe is a national treasure. And I, I don't say that lightly. I just think that like Mike does such good things for our country in terms of opening people's eyes up to, to things that they're not normally thinking about. Obviously, dirty jobs revealed to America um, a lot about work, about work ethic, about the dignity of hard work. I think Mike, you're right. He, he can, you could talk to Mike about any subject and, and the guy is so well read. Um, so he's the perfect spokesman for somebody like that to represent the tradesman, to, to represent the person that works with their hands. Uh, Mike is the perfect person to kind of represent those people and say, no, just because you work with your hands, just because you have a skill doesn't make you any less smart. It doesn't make you any less likely to think about philosophy or any of these other things. It doesn't make you any less of a person. And, and he just, he breaks down so many of the myths in our, in our society that, uh, that really just need to go. And um, that's why he's just one of my favorite people. He's, he's a funny guy and he's actually one of the most talented guys I've ever worked with. You basically just point the camera at him and say, go, and you're going to get something either compelling, interesting, or funny. And, and, and not one take is, is the same as the other. So Mike is just one of my favorite people I've met and been able to be fortunate to work with. And, you know, he's just, uh, he's a great American. You know, interesting, I often try to uh, impart this lesson on my children who are, like I was as a kid, pretty darn lazy at times, is that, you know, we go through the drive-thru and they may make something, some mocking comment about the person who's helping us. And I say, hey guys, that's work. That's, there's dignity in work. It doesn't matter what the job is. You do the job, you do it well, you give, it, give a smile and you give it your all. That matters most of all. So I, I think that that's sort of part of the micro message and it's important. Now that you've got kind of your, your feet wet with PragerU, are there other subjects you'd like to tackle or that may be down the road? Or I'm kind of curious because it seems like it's such a natural connection for you and, and that organization to work together. Well, yeah, actually there is. We're, 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 we're talking now about the next one. I don't want to say what it is because nothing's really set in stone yet, sure. but uh, um, in some ways it could be a little bit of a continuation of no safe spaces and some of the topics there. And so uh, there hopefully will be one here. Hopefully I'll be getting back together with you here on your podcast, Okay, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a number of months to talk about the, the next one. Excellent. You know, the Daily Wire is getting into the entertainment business. I was just on the set with uh, Gina Carano as I drop a name for the show. And, uh, yeah. you know, there are other indie documentaries that are coming out that are maybe more right of center, a little bit more out of the mainstream or kind of poking the bear that isn't being poked. I was kind of curious, you know, you're one of those guys who has talent, is in the industry, but you also have a sense of what's going on in pop culture. Do you think that the sort of this small wave we're seeing will grow in 2022? Is there, are there other things that you're hearing about that you could share? I mean, just what's your general sense from an entertainment perspective? And I don't even just mean right of center, just atypical, you know, like Ryan Long is a great comedian who's fiercely apolitical, but I think right. what he does is very um, idiosyncratic is possibly the best way to say it. You know, it's just, just doing what others aren't. So I kind of curious what, you th what your thinking is on that front. Well, I, I think, you know, guys like Ryan Long and organizations like the Daily Wire are pioneering something very important. I mean, I think they're giving a lot of other people courage to go out and create and, and do things. And, you know, Daily Wire is going to, is creating, you know, their platform is growing and they're going to be putting all kinds of different content on there that's entertaining and give people options that they can go to besides Netflix and, and some of these others that, uh, that ideologically don't have their values in mind. 
And so, but I do think guys like Ryan Long and some of these others that, that are, they're bold and pushing the envelope are, are going to open up the way for other comedians, other entertainers, other writers, directors to make things and have a little bit more courage to make, make something that they believe in and realize that the Netflixes of the world aren't the end all be all. There are other ways to get your content out there. If you were talking to a young creator, male, female, doesn't matter what, what their background is, and they were thinking about projects that were outside the mainstream, that were maybe not what they would see on a Hulu or a Netflix, what advice would you give them as far as stepping forward, doing so boldly, and maybe risking having a voice that isn't universally embraced? Well, authenticity. Authenticity is key. They, the person, whatever they do, they need to be authentic. And if they're authentic and if they have a little bit of talent, they're going to find an audience. And whether that's that audience is on Netflix or, or, or some other small channel somewhere, they're going to be able to build that audience if, if they work hard, if they're authentic and they have something good that, that people are going to want to see. Yeah. I mean, I think the trap people get into is they just feel like they need to curtail their message so that they can land on these one of these platforms. But what they have to realize is the moment they go sideways or they take a wrong step, they're gone. So it's better to build something up from the, from the ground up with, with authenticity. I mean, that's, you mentioned Ryan Long. He's a guy that doesn't have to apologize. He's a guy that doesn't have to be worried about being canceled by whoever owns his show or pays him his paycheck. He built this thing from the ground up with authenticity. And, and as a result, he can go forward boldly. And I think that would be the encouragement I'd give to people is be authentic and, and don't back away from, from what you truly believe. And yeah, it, it may, it may cause you to be looked over at first, or it may, you may lose out on some opportunities, but I think in the long run, you might be in a better position if you stand by what you believe and are authentic. You know, I think that describes Adam Carolla, who you worked with in No Safe Spaces. He built his own pirate ship. That's his term for the uh, business that he created from the ground up. And his policy is, I don't apologize. Don't ask for it. Don't wait for it. It's not coming. And I think that's really fascinating. And he's held true to that. And I think that's interesting about Adam is that cancel culture doesn't even go near him. They don't talk about him. They don't bring up his work. They don't attempt to cancel him. They know that they can't bully him. And they just, they just go on to different targets, which is kind of interesting. But- before I let you go, I know you've got one project you're working on now, and I know there's very little you can say about it, but maybe you can just tease it a tiny bit or just give us a, a sense of how it might shake things up. Anything you can share about this new one? Well, I can't, I can't say a whole lot about it because the nature of these things, and I'm very excited about it. It's a full-length documentary, mm -hmm. and you know, it deals a lot with some of the craziness going on in our society today. It also deals with the, the kind of postmodern relativism of how we got here. So I'm really excited about this project. Uh, it's the type of thing right now where we're out going to get interviews. So that's why I can't talk about it because, sure. you know, if people knew about the project, they may not want to participate. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're out there actively getting interviews and talking to people. Um, but we're excited. I can't really say much more than that. But uh, again, I'm looking forward to joining you on your podcast to talk about it when it's, when it's coming out. I feel the same. I'm, I love your, the work you do. And I think Justin is a great example of someone who works in a space that is outside of Hollywood. But when you see what he does, the trading up documentary, No Safe Spaces, 
your your films look beautiful. They look rich. They look like they had a much, much bigger production value than I'm guessing that they actually did. And it's one of the joys of the, sort of the current wave of artists who are unpredictable as that you're able to kind of create art that stands right up to everything else that's out there, but just happens to speak your piece and uh, as authentic as possible, to use your own phrase. But uh, Justin, thank you for joining Right on Hollywood. Of course, you can watch Trading Up, our Case for Trade Schools, right now online. PragerU's got all your information there. And if you've got kids at home, maybe preteens or teenagers who are thinking about college, if you're a parent who's kind of getting all that money set aside for what's going to be an enormous bill coming soon, maybe this is something you really need to think about to kind of open up your horizons. And I know, culturally speaking, I feel like it's been drilled into my brain that it's college or nothing. I think we really have to get away from that. I think that trading up is just a small but essential part of moving away from that mindset. And uh, we thank you for it. Justin, thanks again, and uh, we will definitely talk to you soon. Hey, it's Christian. Thanks for all the kind words, and uh, thanks for your platform, man. You're really uh, getting some good truths out there for people and talking about entertainment and all the important stuff. Well, as I say at Chick-fil-A, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Ride on Hollywood this week. You know, this show could really use an Apple podcast boost, so if you're enjoying the content, please go over to Apple and give us a juicy, succulent five-star rating. We'd really appreciate it. See you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.